Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me as co-host is Trish Rich of Holland and Knight. Hi, Trish. Hey, John. Trish, followers of the pod will know that in season one, we spoke with Amanda Knox's Italian defense team. It was an intensely interesting conversation that covered everything from the evidence of the case to comparative law discussions about the differences between the Italian and American criminal legal systems. Today, we're joined by Amanda herself. Now, as always, this conversation is unscripted. We haven't previously spoken with Amanda. We haven't game-planned the conversation, much less set out rules or discussion points. Having said that, let me lay this down as an accepted fact for our conversation today. Amanda Knox did not kill Meredith Kersher. We went into some detail about the evidence in our prior podcast with Amanda's defense team, and we're not going to rehash it here today. We're not here to discuss the details of the crime. But it is worth taking a moment to remind our audience, or perhaps inform them for the first time, of the overwhelming evidence establishing the guilt of Rudy Guede. Guede was a known thief, having been tied to several burglaries, including in the weeks leading up to Meredith's murder. Guede was known to carry deadly weapons, including a knife, during at least one of those prior burglaries. Meredith had numerous defensive wounds, suggesting a struggle with a killer who was strong enough to overcome her. Guede had wounds on his hands, suggesting he was recently in a physical struggle. Guede's DNA was found on Meredith in a manner suggesting attempted sexual contact. Guede's feces were found, unflushed, in the apartment's bathroom toilet. Guede's footprints and shoe prints were found in Meredith's blood at the scene of the murder. Guede's bloody palm prints were found on the pillow beneath Meredith's hips. Guede's fingerprints were found in Meredith's blood beneath her body. Guede's fingerprints were also found on Meredith's purse, which contained the only items missing from the apartment that night. And Guede fled Perugia, Italy for Germany soon after the killing. The evidence against Guede was, as I said, overwhelming, suggesting, if not demanding, a conclusion no more complicated than this. Guede broke into the apartment. He decided to relieve himself mid-crime, a surprisingly common occurrence in burglaries. Meredith came home as Guede was in the washroom, and he decided not to flush the toilet and thereby alert her to his presence. Rather than flee, Guede chose to attack and rob Meredith, which he did, resulting in her death, her murder. Guede was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison, although his sentence was later reduced on appeal to 16 years. One would think that should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. Early in the investigation, the police and Italian prosecutor focused on Amanda and her boyfriend, starting with the conclusion that Meredith's death was part of some deviant sex game gone wrong. And that was the version that we all first came to know. The scheming, promiscuous woman, Foxy Noxy, as the tabloids described her, using sex to control men to evil ends. It's a sexist trope as old as storytelling itself, and because it was both sensational and so unconsciously familiar, the press and the public ate it up in a global feeding frenzy. Amanda and her boyfriend were convicted of Meredith's murder, and after a drawn-out legal process that saw Amanda sit in prison for nearly four years, her conviction was eventually overturned by Italy's Supreme Court of Cassation. To be clear, the court didn't simply enter a finding of not guilty. It affirmatively found Amanda innocent, an extremely rare occurrence based on the botched manner in which the investigation was conducted and the debunking of the purported evidence against her. And then Amanda came home, which is where we'd like to begin today. Amanda, welcome to At The Bar. 
Thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a very intense introduction, but I I appreciate it. <laughs> well, we, we are lawyers, so, <laughs> you know, we've been accused of worse, I suppose. <laughs> no, they, I thank you. And thank you for, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this that you weren't going to interrogate me about the facts of the crime. And that's really refreshing because I do feel like to this day, I'm supposed to answer for Rudy Gaudet's crime in many right. ways. I'm supposed to, like, demystify it for people. And and that was very refreshing to not be the one responsible for doing that on this podcast episode. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's start there. This mm-hmm. event has in so many ways come to define your life. And I, I don't say that to mean that this was the only important thing to happen in your life. I mean— I guess what I mean is that when most people think about this murder, they don't think of the victim, Meredith. They don't think of the murderer, Goide. They think of you. They know your face. They don't know Meredith's face. They don't know Rudy's face. How do you go about life knowing that this profoundly unfair but perhaps inevitable lens through which most of the world views you? Like how? What's that like? I don't even know how to formulate the question properly. It just popped <laughs> into my head. Yeah, no, it's the question that I've been asking myself for a long time, and it's the ongoing struggle because it's absolutely true that I live with the stigma of another man's crimes, and I'm the one who has to carry that reputational burden. And it means that everywhere I go throughout the world, I know that there is an idea of me in someone's mind whenever I encounter them and that that I'm going to be forever in conversation with that through that lens and with that character in someone else's mind. How do I live with it? I don't know. There's no choice but to. I guess the thing that I'm trying to do is figure out if I have any valuable insights about human nature or about interpersonal relationships based upon that very unique inescapable fact of my experience that I just that's something that I live with on a very real level every every day and it makes me I guess sensitive to the various ways that we all have a character that is in someone else's mind that we're being sort of judged against I don't know I I think that it's it's a struggle and sometimes it makes me just want to disappear and it makes me feel like no matter what I do, nothing is going to matter as much as the actions of other people and how they've impacted me. So I have to push against that impulse to disappear and to give up and be defeated and to instead say, well, I am a worthwhile person and I can do worthwhile things. So I'm just going to keep plugging along and doing them. <laughs> and and that, that instinct, you know, to try to run away from this strikes me as like the most human reaction possible. Um but, but it's also it, the least productive, right? Like right. you can you can try to run away from what you know the world's perception of you, but you live in the world and you're a person, and we're all social animals, and so it does matter what people think of us, and it does matter that the first thing that people think of when they think of me is a murder that I didn't commit. Do you think that's gotten better over time? Because it's been you've been back in the states now for a long time, and. So there's been the passage of time since the crime, the conviction, the exoneration, all of these things. But then also you're just older now, right? And so Mm -hmm. has that felt lessened to you over time? 
Um, it's, it's gotten more nuanced. So I think the fact that I'm living in less of a black and white world where people feel really, really strongly about the story that they were told, whether it's, you know, a man in Ox is this, you know, naive, totally in, like innocent, innocent person who is just this helpless damsel in distress, or it's the horrible psychotic horror monster. Like, I think that people understand that I'm a more nuanced person than those like black and white characters that I was portrayed as. And I think that the difference today is that I'm having conversations like these with people like you and with other people, too. Like, I think people are starting to realize that there's more to my story than just did she or didn't she, that there's a whole story about how much does storytelling impact a person's life and how much are our identities not of our own making and is that something that we can all relate to or not? I think that that's my impression today is that when people are curious about my experience, they're curious about what the hell do you do when you find yourself having zero or little agency in not just what happens to you in life, but who you are in your own life. Do you think on that point that the Me Too movement and everything that's come in its wake is forcing us as a society to reevaluate some of the assumptions that I think led to your conviction. You know, as I think I said at the top of the program, the narrative put out about you is ancient, right? History books are, I know you're a nerd, um, and history books are littered with examples of powerful women brought down by some version of the exact same story. The yeah. seductress using sex to control men and advance you know, their own evil ends. Do you feel like we're, in the broader swath making progress on that? Or is it just one conversation at a time? Um, I do think that Me Too, at the very least, brought to light how universal the experience of women being either exploited or, or vilified through their sexuality is, that it's not just this, it's not an uncommon an occurrence, it's actually strikingly and shockingly common. Right. Um, and there are different degrees to which it happens in any individual moment, but that it's something that is deeply felt by a large quantity of women. And so I think that that is a really important thing, and it, and it gives one pause. I think that the Me Too movement offered people the opportunity to pause and reconsider their immediate assumptions about a woman when she is portrayed through a sexualized light, um, right. which is great. And I think it also what it did was it gave women a sense of like coming together to address something that is universal. At the same time, I think that there's been a lot of pushback and a lot of appropriate pushback to the idea that, you know, like I remember a really important conversation that it, and it's interesting to find myself at this intersection because Yes, I'm 100% pro addressing like how women have been exploited and harmed on both the like side of you're accused of a crime, but also in the side of a crime happened to you and you're trying to get it legally addressed. Hmm. There's also the issue of my friends who have absolutely been a, uh, falsely accused of rape. And it was a he said, she said, and 
she said won in that case. And then the, a young man who didn't do anything wrong went to prison. And so I think that there's been some interest. Like, I think there again, there's an impulse to like in the advocacy movement to make things seem very black and white when it is gritty and nuanced and you need to like be comfortable entering into uncomfortable gray spaces. But ultimately, I think, yes, uh, there has been a positive impact of people questioning their automatic assumption that if a woman has been presented to them as a crazy psycho train wreck, maybe, just maybe, that's a false story that is being used to dismiss their experience. And maybe people will be more hesitant to present them as a crazy, sex-crazed maniac to begin with. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and yet, and yet, you know, just this past year, there was a movie that presented yet another version of the Amanda Knox character who's having sex with her roommate and then tries to get her murdered. So, like, and spoiler yet, alert, <laughs> spoiler <guys>. alert. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, let me ask a question about that. And so I will say the movie Amanda is referencing right now is Stillwater. And if you have not seen it yet and you are one of these people that cares a lot about spoilers, you should probably skip ahead a couple of minutes. But yes, I saw a lot of press around this movie and, and some of the interviews you gave around it. And, you know, the story is, you know, openly and obviously based on your experience and in, in Meredith's death. But then it ends with the young woman and the story actually being involved in Meredith's death or mm -hmm. the character's death that, you know, was portrayed uh, to have been Meredith. Now, um, so first of all, have you seen the movie? I have not seen the movie, but I know what the story is and I know how it ends. Yeah. And so what was your reaction to that? Because, you know, I watched it to prepare for today's interview and I was very surprised that it ended that way. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it's just so Hollywood because and I can see, I understand that creative impulse. Like there is this creative impulse to just say, OK, we're going to take this nugget from real life, which is what all creative people do. They take a nugget from real life and then they go and now we're going to fictionalize it and we're going to fictionalize it by telling the most thrilling, you know, shocking story that we can. And of course, they would land on, well, a twist at the end, she is implicated. But the frustrating thing for me is that they didn't fictionalize it enough, right? Like yeah. they they were lazy fictionalizers. Like if you're going to take fiction, you're going to like the way that the creative process works is you do take things from real life. You take little hints and and character traits and and dramas that you see around you and you piece them all together in this beautiful creative mosaic that says something about the world that you think is interesting. But in this case, they chose to very, very closely follow the drama that was presented in my own court case and was used to vilify me. And they also took the sort of ongoing drama that I deal with, which is that hint of people think that somehow I must be somehow implicated indirectly or directly, even if I was found innocent. Like that's the sort of lingering stigma that I live with. And they just reinforced it. So instead right. of and then, the, of course, they use my name to promote the film. So like wink, wink, it's based on inspired by but it's not her. But like you're thinking of her and that's how we're getting you to come see the film. Like that's the thing where it's like, don't don't lie to me and say that you're fictionalizing it and therefore it's not going to have consequences for me as a person. Like, 
be a better creator, be a better storyteller, stop exploiting the drama that surrounds me and not acknowledging how it's going to impact me personally. Like, that's the thing that always bugs me about these fictionalizations is people pretend that because they put a new name on it or they slapped a new in, – it's in France and not Italy. Like, <laughs> then people are not going to obviously draw parallels and then draw, like – and then be influenced in their opinion about the case when, right. because not everyone has the time to dig into all the dirty details. They're just left with an impression. And that impression of a person is something that has actual consequences for that person's life. And that that's what struck me about the movie when I watched it as well. The quote unquote twist was exactly what you'd been accused of. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was really only a twist if you knew something about the case and had more than reasonable doubt about your guilt. And then you have this ending and it makes you question, oh, well, maybe she was indirectly involved somehow. Right. Like that was a conscious decision that the filmmakers made not to tell your story or something proximate to it, but the tabloids version of the story mm-hmm. ultimately and to counter the narrative that has been established definitively now in the Italian Supreme Court. And I like and the thing is, I could even see them doing it unconsciously. Like they Mm. say, okay, we're going to start with a man and ox and, you know, writer's room, writer's room, throw out some ideas. But then, of course, they do the most obvious thing. (laughs) They were lazy storytellers because they didn't even realize that they were just telling the same story that's been in the tabloids this entire time. So, yeah. And do you think you, you brought up how it impacts you. Do you think that when, you know, be it journalists or creatives are telling a story like this, they should pause and think about the effect that the way they're telling the story has on their subject? Yeah. And I think that it's interesting that we've sort of been having conversations around that in the world of creatives and um, stories, because, of course, we've seen how in the past, when the only time that we see a young black man in a film and he's always a thug or he's always a basketball player, like that sends a message to the broader society about what we can expect about those kinds of individuals. And we've seen that like sort of relying and always doing stereotype is going to impact real people's lives. And the thing that I wanted to show was, yes, that happens on like a on a sort of broad, like stereotyping kinds of people perspective, but it also happens on an individual perspective. Mm. And another thing I want to point out about it is it's like when we keep like it's not just just still water. It's not like there's I can't tell you the number of shows or novels that have very, very lazily just rehashed this same story, the same tabloid story about girl on girl crime and very, very obviously presented this story in the world as like, oh, Amanda Knox, but with this twist or Amanda Knox, but that twist. And it's doing a disservice also to the reality of this crime, which is that a young woman was raped and murdered by a guy. And everyone forgets that. Everyone like that is also a disservice to the reality of this example of violence against women. And it's... It's frustrating to me that the fantasy, which is clearly just some misogynist fantasy, keeps getting platformed as opposed Mm. to a real story that can tell that one can say something more about actual women's experiences. And that piece of lived wisdom is probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. 
Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Trish, just before we took a break, I saw you raising your hand over there. You have a, yeah. a question for Amanda? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, Amanda, one of the things that you've become known for since you've come back is working on certain criminal justice reforms. And one of them, I've heard and read different interviews you've done about false confessions. And, mm-hmm. you know, your case in particular has not every hallmark of a false confession, but like maybe 90% of them, right? You were a young woman, you didn't really know the language, you were kept from seeing a lawyer, you were in jail for many days, you were interrogated overnight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now, you know, we're almost 15 years later. So I think my question is, do you think the body of study around false confessions has evolved significantly since you went through that experience or not really? That's a great question. Um, and it's you're right that like of all the sort of criminal justice reform issues that I'm passionate about, false confessions is potentially the one that I am the most passionate about and I think is so important because of how devastating a confession is in a criminal trial. Like it absolutely in in so many instances trumps the evidence, the actual physical evidence. And it colors people's perception of a human being in a really, really deep way, which is why police and prosecutors remain very, very protective of the liberties that they can take in an interrogation room because they know that it is their, like, most important evidence against someone and the easiest evidence to obtain because you don't have Mm. to, you know, it's not expensive to just sit someone in a room for a long time and manipulate them into implicating themselves. It is expensive to do a, a thorough investigation that requires a lot of scientific analysis and and you know legwork and asking witnesses and blah, 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 blah. like just if you can isolate an individual and make them implicate themselves, you make your job very easy. And what's unfortunate is that the things that police are allowed to do in an interrogation room are very, very, very effective at getting guilty people to confess. They are also very, very, very effective at getting innocent people to confess. And that's the issue. Before all of this happened to me, I had no idea. It was not on my radar. I thought that short of someone putting corkscrews in someone's underneath someone's fingernails, you would no innocent person would ever, ever, ever implicate themselves in a crime. Like I just I just could not imagine it. And indeed, the vast majority of people cannot imagine what it feels like to be coerced in that way. And even as it was happening to me, I didn't understand what was going on. One of the things I want to point out is or like that I say often is like people assume that the worst part of that experience that I went through was going and receiving a guilty verdict and having a judge say, you are guilty of this crime. You are sentenced to 26 and a half years. 
go back to jail. Like that was a terrible, terrible moment for me. And it was devastating. And it caused a ton of existential crises because it it made me rethink like, okay, well, the truth doesn't matter. So I guess now I don't know what I have to rely on anymore. But like the worst moment was not that. The worst moment was when the police coerced me into implicating myself and others against my will. And they did so by breaking down my own sanity, making me feel like I was crazy, telling me, suggesting to me that I had amnesia, that I had witnessed this crime and couldn't remember it, and I was never going to see my family again unless I could remember it right then and there for them to write down. And it was the worst experience of my life, and I I have so much compassion for people who find themselves similarly vulnerable because you are alone in there and you can't defend yourself. And when you come out of that room, even if it is recognized eventually that you falsely confessed, the stigma that comes with you're, you're someone who either implicated yourself or you implicated others, suddenly you are an other and people do not understand what your experience is and they fault you for it in a big way. I faulted myself for it in a big way for a long time until I was given research on this. And I, it was shown that, you know, my interrogation conditions were very, very similar to the interrogation conditions of people here in the U.S. who had falsely confessed and that I was not, you know, uniquely a broken individual. Do I think that it's getting better now? I do think so, because I think that even just people talking about it as if, like it's more complicated than just they confessed is a big step forward. Um, I think the fact that there was a whole Netflix series called The Confession Tapes where they looked at people who had confessed to crimes but yet hadn't committed them. And I think we're also having interesting conversations about the various ways that people are coerced. Like there are many different ways that this manifests itself. Like you can see it in domestic violence cases where like people judge women who stay with men who abuse them and we don't understand why. And it's like, well, there are aspects of like internalized, you know, self-doubt that comes from coercion on the part of the partner. So like it's the sort of interpersonal human dynamics that cause people to act in ways that are against their self-interest and, and against their will are fascinating and myriad. And they are... Also, some of the easiest ones to address, like in terms of a reform issue, like people have been studying in what ways police break down individuals in an interrogation room, like lie to them, for instance. We could we could very easily make a new rule that you're not allowed to lie to suspects anymore. And that would have huge results that would lead to like a better justice system. And yet we're stymied. Uh, in in efforts to like try to fix those rules because again, police and prosecutors are very protective of their ability to lie to people because it throws them off guard. Right. Well, and a lot of the victims of those types of interrogations are young, powerless people. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. People who um, just like the dynamics that you are in a situation where the people who are across from you talking to you are people who have the power to take away your freedom. Like these are the people that you rely on for justice. And if they're sitting across from you saying, you are going to like, this is how it's going to go. Like, or this, or you're wrong. Even just like someone in that position telling you that you're wrong. 
like you can know that you're not wrong and that you you don't like I was sitting there. I knew that I didn't witness Meredith get murdered, but they're telling me I'm wrong. They're telling me that that's not the truth, that they know it's not the truth. They know that I witnessed it, that they know that I have amnesia. Like if people in positions of power that you rely on are telling you that you're wrong and they isolate you enough and they scare you enough, it starts to impact you. You are a person, whether or not you're someone who's also poor or doesn't like have resources to get defense counsel, you just being in that position by virtue of relying on them, and they're not relying on you, you rely on them, makes you vulnerable to suggestion. And it's worth reminding our audience really quickly, just one of the lies that was told to you that has always stood out in my mind when you were being held in the jail after your initial rounds of interrogation was that you had HIV mm-hmm. and that you should you know sit down and give a hard think about all your former sexual partners. And you did that because it would be the responsible thing to do. You journaled about it. And what happens, the prison authorities take your journal and they hand it over to the press to you know commit character assassination. I mean, this was psychological torture. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that. Yeah, it was um, a shocking experience. And of course, like, it, and also how like blatantly manipulative it was. Like, you know, they saw me, first of all, the first two weeks of my imprisonment, I'm being called into a private office every day by a prison official who's interrogating me about my sex life and wants to know everything about my sex life and whether or not I would have sex with him and what kind of like underwear I'm wearing. So just I'm just constantly being interrogated about sex by this person who then later informs me that I have HIV. I need to think about really hard about who all my sex partners were. And they, knowing that I'm spending every day writing in my journal because they, I'm being watched, the very next day going into my cell and taking every scrap of paper that had my handwriting on it. And then shortly thereafter, it's big news out there in the world that I had sex with seven people in my entire life and what a whore and, you know, what a psycho. That itself sort of confirms to me that by that point, the evidence didn't really matter to right. the investigators. At that point, it was about justifying their what they had already done, which was imprison a young woman for a, a man's crime, and doing so by attacking her sexuality and suggesting that because I was a sexually active young woman, I was also therefore capable of incredible, horrific violence. So, you know, that just brings to mind one word that perhaps is used too often, but I think certainly fits here, Kafkaesque, an experience like this. You spent nearly four years in prison. You didn't do this. How did you get through it? Um, so, I don't know if this is a, a disappointing answer or... It, it was a very day-by-day kind of situation. I didn't know. And it's interesting because the first two years of my imprisonment, I got through it in a very different way than I did my second two years of imprisonment. And the difference being that the first two years, I was on trial and I had not yet been convicted. And the second two years, I had been convicted and I was on appeal. And leading up to my conviction, those first two years, 
I very much felt like my life was on pause and I was in the middle of a situation that was really big and out of control, but ultimately the adults in the room would win and I would get to go home. It was just a terrible experience, but ultimately like it's going to get figured out and I'm going to get to go home. And when that did not happen, that sort of distance between myself and my experience and what the reality of my situation was collapsed. Suddenly I was not just, you know, a person who was in prison. I was a prisoner. Mm. I'm no longer a, you know, a person wrongly put on trial. I am a I am a convicted killer. And my life and my community is now bound by the limitations of the the walls that I that were surrounding me. Leading up to that moment, I kept like imagining, okay, as soon as I get home, I want to go back to school and I'm going to, you know, like I'm just waiting. I'm a tourist who's waiting to go home. And after that point, I no longer was waiting. I was trying to make my life worth living. And that was a very, very conscious decision every day after my conviction of how do I make this life worth living? Is it as simple as I'm going to do more sit-ups today than I did yesterday? And I'm, am I going to write a letter to my mom? And am I going to, you know, help my friend learn Italian so that she can have an easier time when she's going out to get a coffee? Like, I set myself really, really humble goals that nevertheless were meaningful to me. And I held on to those things as a way of feeling like my life wasn't being stolen from me. It was a constant, like, grasping at what was left and making the most of it. So hearing that, Amanda, when films like Stillwater come out Hmm. and reinforce the false public narrative about you, is there a part of you that feels like it's happening all over again? What occurs to me is that From then to now and ongoing, there's the feeling that my actual experience and my story isn't really what matters to people. The controversy matters to people. The the intrigue about whether or not a young woman would rape and murder her roommate is interesting to people. What the experience of trying to, like, acquit that person or convict that person on trial is interesting to people. But the experience of living day by day, and trying to make life worth living is either uninteresting or overlooked. And that's my story. Like when people have asked me, like, well, if you were going to tell your story, well, how would you do it? And it's like, well, my story is one about trying to reclaim agency after my agency has been stolen from me and after my identity has been stolen from me and growing up in that experience because I was 20 years old when this happened. Right. So I grew up having like before I was even a fully formed person fighting against a unjust, not just representation of me in the world, but an unjust reality. Like I was literally there in prison being treated like that non-reality. And for people to continue to tell the the story of did she or didn't she reinforces to me that the human experience that I went through is largely overlooked by people. And that's a unique opportunity for me because it means that I can 
if I can articulate that experience to myself, I can articulate it to others. And maybe then it will resonate with people. But the burden is on me. Like the burden is on me to say, actually, I'm I'm this person and that person has valuable perspective and valuable experience and things to say about the world. But no one no one is assuming that of me. So Rudy Gaudet was just recently released from prison a couple of weeks ago and Mm -hmm. released a couple of years early, actually. And uh, it seems like from everything I've read, he has been, by all accounts, a fairly model prisoner and, you know, was released with good behavior credits. Um, But as soon as he came out, he um, I saw your your Twitter thread saying, Rudy, you know, you are the person that could actually clear my name. Would you do that? And him retorting back to you in the media saying, you know the truth. We both know the truth of what happened, which is a little interesting coming from him because I think that has shaped and shifted a lot over time. Mm-hmm. But my question is with, you know, you being somebody that's so heavily involved in reform, like, do you believe in prison as a rehabilitative device? And in this instance, do you think Gaudet, somebody who's coming out of prison and who's been a model prisoner, but comes out still denying his involvement, still pointing the fingers at other people. Is that what you think rehabilitation looks like? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's funny. I, I had like a whole episode of my podcast, Labyrinths, where I talked about this because and it was when he was released initially. And then like the big news. So he was sort of released from prison back, I think, about a year ago. But then very recently, Basically, his his sentence was reduced yet again after it had already been reduced so that he had did time served and was no longer accountable to the the right. He was on some sort cars. of like release probation program. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was on like work release. And so they were like, OK, good job with your work release. We're going to now just get rid of the rest of your sentence, basically. And at that time period, I was like you following his what was reported about his rehabilitation in prison, that he was a nonviolent inmate, that he was doing charity, like working with a charity and and all of that. And I thought, OK, interesting. Right. Like the like chess tournament thing he's doing. I, I don't know. It, yeah. It's something like that. So, you How know, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Interesting. I know that over the years in the past, he had been giving interviews, once again, claiming that I'm I was involved in this crime and that he's totally innocent. And the only reason that he was put away in prison was because he's a poor black guy, not because there's all this overwhelming evidence against him. And I was wondering, well, is this person rehabilitated? Is he going to take responsibility for his actions? Because he is continuing to perpetrate harm by allowing me to bear the burden of his crimes. So is he going to, if he's truly rehabilitated, if he really does feel bad for what he did and wants to be a better person, is he going to try to stop the harm? Is he going to try to actually like, you know, he can't give back Meredith her life, but he can, in a way, give me back my life. And was he going to do that? That was the sort of open question that I had in my podcast episode. And then I was tremendously, tremendously disappointed to find that he is not just allowing people to continue to think of me um, when they think of his crimes, but he's also putting forth that 
story yet again. And so to me, what that suggests is here's a young man who who's older now, who has aged, who's probably aged out of crime in the sense that it it's no longer he's no longer such an impulsive individual and he's probably not going to kill someone. I can't say that for sure. Don't hold me to it. But like he's probably not. I think he's probably in different circumstances in his life where he no longer feels like he the best thing for him to do in a given moment is to rape and murder somebody. Be that as it may, he's not rehabilitated in that he's not taking responsibility for his actions and he's continuing to perpetrate harm against the indirect victims of his actions. And, you know, he's not entirely responsible for that because, you know, he wasn't the one who initially accused me. It was the prosecution. And then his defense team latched onto that as a way to deflect responsibility from him. And he changed his story to implicate me after he was arrested. So I think that he is he has not come to terms with his crimes and he's therefore not rehabilitated in that way. Do I think that more prison would get him there? I don't know. He spent 13 years in prison and it didn't get him there. Um, I think that we have this idea that if you just deprive someone of their freedom, they're going to figure out how they harmed people and do the right thing. And that I think that time again, the research shows that that's not the case, that depriving someone of their freedom doesn't just automatically get them to understand the harm that they've perpetrated and to do the right thing. So I think that I'm not like a 100 percent prison abolitionist person who says prison is never works and isn't, you know, is never appropriate. And we should never deprive someone of their freedom, because I do think that there are people who run the risk of perpetrating further crimes and we need to protect society. And sometimes the only way to protect society is to limit someone's freedom in a really drastic way. But I think that the way that we use prison right now today as retribution for crimes and as like an excuse to as our way of saying, well, this is how we're going to correct you. It's not a correctional facility. It's not something where we are giving people the emotional intelligence to recognize harm and to rehabilitate their sense of personhood. And like, you know, another thing that I think I don't know if it actually gets very addressed. It certainly wasn't addressed in my prison experience was I was viewing I was around a lot of people who had committed crimes who before they ever committed a crime had been a victim of a crime. And mm. their, you know, how they had been victimized had never been addressed by society. And I think that we as a society are lazy when it comes to wrongdoing and are are not really forthcoming in recognizing how we are all implicated when someone commits a crime. And it's not just because that person is a bad person. It's because that person exists in a world that offered them a lot of really bad options. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that we can do a lot more to change the prison environment so that it is truly rehabilitative. I think also we should try different avenues of trying to encourage people to acknowledge harm, because I think that's one of the major things that the criminal justice system often fails to do is to have people really, really account for how someone has been hurt by their actions 
Instead, it becomes a automatic, like, well, now I have to defend myself from getting hurt. So I'm not going to acknowledge anyone's hurt from my actions. And that's really hard for the people who suffered the consequences of those crimes. Hearing you say that, it reminds me of the logic behind the truth and reconciliation models of justice. And you yeah. also recently reached out to Meredith's parents, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get super into that just because I, I, people really often want to talk to me about that, but I don't want to put them on the spot. Like, okay. I don't want them to think that I'm having a million interviews where I'm talking about how they're not talking to me. Mm. <laughs> because honestly, like, they don't have to talk to me. Like, it's not, I am not entitled to a conversation with them. What I just want them to know is I think that if we were to have the opportunity to have a conversation, it could be very healing because we have a lot more in common than I think maybe they recognize. And we have, like, as people who have been harmed by a single man's actions, we've all been harmed in our various ways. Like, I feel like we could, especially um, in the grieving process, like, find some common healing through common grief. Okay, so... Let's go back to Rudy then. Hearing the very lived wisdom from you about you know empathy being a two-way street and understanding where people came from and the circumstances that at least led, if not caused, their decision-making, mm -hmm. led to rather. Let me ask what's probably a deceptively simple question. How do you sit there today and not hate Rudy Guede? Hmm. I don't hate a lot of people. <laughs> I'm trying to even imagine someone I truly hate. Um, it's very, very difficult for me to imagine that feeling. Um, but, I mean, which, this is this is uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the man who, like you said, the Italian Supreme Court of Cassation cleared you. All the evidence points at him. But as you said, in a way, you traded one jail cell for another. Yes, you're mm -hmm. not in prison right now, but you're still living this accusation in a very real way. And mm -hmm. he is the one person on this planet who could dispel any remaining doubt. Yeah, and, he won't. and he's and he's refusing to and he's actively going out of his way to perpetrate that harm and to continue that harm. Yeah, it's um I'm mad at him for sure. <laughs> and I think that he's kind of pathetic, so I pity him. But I think that it ultimately comes down to that is I pity him and I imagine that he is someone who like I I pity someone who who thinks that the best way to survive is by putting down another person. And it makes me think that if you genuinely believe that what you're doing is the right thing for you, like ultimately comes down, he's making a choice. He's making what he thinks is the best choice for him in these circumstances. Like what happened to you that you think that letting an innocent person take the fall for your crimes is the right thing to do. Like what, it almost makes me feel like, you know, are you someone who's like so divorced from humanity and is like, were you just abandoned as a child and therefore you think that it's fine to like throw people under a bus because that's just how you survive? Like, is that your world? Is That's a really sad and scary world that you live in. And I live in a world where you should and can admit when you're wrong and that there's a lot of really beautiful and powerful things that can come from that. And I'm not going to like 
you know, if he came forward today and said, I was wrong, I let Amanda take the fall for me, and that was a wrong thing to do, and I'm sorry, I... I wonder if he believes that he would be punished further. He wouldn't be punished further by me. I believe that, like, if someone acknowledges how they've harmed you, that is an incredibly healing thing that almost undoes the harm, honestly. Like, that's enough for me. That would be enough. I probably wouldn't let him hang out with my baby. Just, <laughs> but, like, I, I, I would have no beef with him. So... I was just going to mention that. Now, you are a new parent. Like my good friend John, you are raising a baby girl, right? Yep. I'm raising a That's baby exciting. girl in this crazy, crazy world. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Uh, these pandemic babies are going to, I think, go through a reckoning when they go outside and meet other people someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, she's still very young. So, um, you know, I, I feel for people. Oh, God, I, I feel so bad for people who were giving birth right when the world was shutting down and people didn't know how careful they needed to be. And so they're like women who were forced to give birth alone to like a cold hospital room full of people with masks, like as she's going through like this incredibly insane, like I cannot tell you how insane it is to give birth. It is, it is so, I have a whole, I did a whole series on my podcast about it because it's so crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. And so to be isolated like that, I feel so bad because you really do need community to be a parent. You need, you need a sense of belonging and to be isolated is just insane. I feel so bad for people. So you have your new baby girl and your podcast, Labyrinths, with your mm -hmm. husband, Christopher Robinson. Mm -hmm. So what is next? What are you working on next? So I am a professional storyteller because I have, through my own experience, realized the incredible power of storytelling and if for good or for evil. I try to do that in lots of different ways. So I have my podcast. I do journalism. Um and I have a few things in the works. I don't know if I'm allowed to say them yet. It's though. just us so. here. Should we? It's just, yeah, it's this, just... this is a safe space. And we, I've got, I've got a whole, privilege. I've got a whole department of IP lawyers down the hall. If you want to consult with them really quickly. Um, yeah. No, I have a few really interesting things in the works that have to do with this question of who owns whose story and mm -hmm. in what way. So keep on the lookout for that. Wink. <laughs> and that cliffhanger is the perfect place to take another break. We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. 
The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.chicagobar.org. And we're back. The game is Stranger in Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. Trish and I have done some fishing around the internet. We found a strange law that is real but probably shouldn't be. We've also made another one up, and we're going to quiz Amanda and each other to see who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Amanda, you ready to play? I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Trish, take it away. All right. I'm going to go first today. So this is law number one. In Michigan... If you are traveling with a freshly cut Christmas tree, wait, you wait, must- wait, wait. Can you go a single episode without mentioning Michigan? I cannot. Just like one. I had to sneak it in here at the end of this podcast. There was not any nexus to Michigan. I was driving. I was driving to work with my wife today, and I said, "If Trish brings up Michigan, I'm cutting her off. That's a commitment I'm making." And, honey, if you're listening to this. I'm a man of my word. Okay, start over. I'm we sorry. We all know Bridget is team Trish, Did, so. <laughs> are you like Detroit true. hustles harder? Are you, yeah, are I you sure de- am. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry, Amanda, for that untimely and rude interruption. So law number one. In Michigan, if you are traveling with a freshly cut Christmas tree, you must also be carrying a receipt. Both of my laws today are Christmas flavored, by the way. Law number two. In a New York City, the display of a natural Christmas tree indoors is illegal. Mm. That is fascinating. Um, so wait, so I'm supposed to decide so which one one's is, real and which, which one's, one's not real? Correct. Yeah. One is true and one is not true. And we're I competing think, against each other. Okay. Can I, I have an instinct. Go. And that is that the receipt one is real because they're trying to dissuade people from going and just cutting random trees everywhere. I don't think the New York City one is real. John? I agree for that very reason. I tried to make this one a little easy. Um, That's right. So for exactly that reason. But I will say in New York City, you cannot have a natural tree in any retail store. And I think there was just a story in the news just last week about a natural tree catching on fire in New York City. And Uh, I wasn't there and I didn't do it, but I did read about it. And so if you're going to put a tree in a retail store in New York, it has to be artificial. I also read that in Philadelphia, it has to be an artificial tree in any dwelling that is designed to house more than two families, which I doubt is... Uh, no way is that enforced. Yeah, no one, <laughs> yeah. Are, no one is enforcing that. That is fascinating. Okay, cool. But yes, the Michigan law is true for exactly that reason. They don't want you just going rogue and cutting your own Christmas trees. All right. Got it. All right. John? Option number one, round two. In Utah, it is illegal to cause a catastrophe defined as an event causing widespread injury or damage to persons or property through, among other things, the use of a weapon of mass destruction, resulting in an avalanche. That's option number one. No WMDs for avalanches. Okay. (laughs) Option number two. In Washington State, your neck of the woods, Mm -hmm. it is illegal for private citizens to seed clouds with silver iodide, potassium iodide, 
solid carbon dioxide or liquid propane causing increased precipitation. So option number one, WMD, catastrophes, avalanches. Option number two, making it rain even more in Seattle. (laughs) I I have a strong instinct about this one as well, which is that the Utah one is definitely real because I could totally, like it's, you know, they have mountains there. People ski, like they're really concerned about avalanches and they probably have people with guns there. So, you know, it makes sense. Here, I don't think anyone ever complains about it raining even more because we just, we just dig that stuff. We're aquatic. Trish, what do you think? <laughs> um, I don't know. I kind of am stumped on this one. I just spent a week in Utah, and I would have agreed with everything you said up until avalanches. That's kind of where I was like, I don't know if this is real. Um, um, uh, sorry, Mike. Is it okay if I pause for a moment? Because my cat sure. is it somehow sneaked in here, and I was attempting to climb <laughs> out. Your, so she's yeah, like, is your cat trying to give me a lifeline? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> um. This Seattle lot, like it makes sense to me that you can't throw things into the atmosphere, but also I don't, it's it's hard for me to believe that they're regulating rainfall. Oh, so, my husband is now telling me to reconsider my my option because of Eastern Washington. But anyway, oh, continue. continue. So I, I am actually going <laughs> to, getting a look from John, I am actually going to go the opposite way. Um because I'm not sure, and I recognize this as my opportunity to pull ahead just in case I'm right. So, <laughs> so Amanda, are you sticking by your answer? Or? I think I am. Okay. And you knew, but you, my husband disagrees with me. <laughs> and you are undefeated in Stranger ah! Than Legal Fiction. <laughs> Section 766105 of the Utah Code makes it illegal to use weapons of mass destruction, apparently, because people need to be told that. In Utah. Uh, who in in Utah? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm imagining a guy who's like skiing with his submachine gun, and he's just like <laughs> shooting it at the mountain. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely yeah, that's plausible. Yeah, Amanda, I can say without hesitation that this has been one of the most interesting and thoughtful conversations we've had on this podcast. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy holidays. Be careful of where you put your Christmas tree. <laughs> this is coming out in January, so everyone. Oh, sorry. That's why. It's I fine. hope you had a happy holiday. I hope, yes, there you go. Perfect. I also want to thank my co-host, Trish Rich, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, as well as Alan Lockwood on Sound and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Our email address is podcast at chicagobar.org. Remember, we're putting together a mailbag episode for early 2022, so be sure to send us ideas for interesting legal topics, cases, or strange laws that you'd like us to explore. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback back on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, iHeart, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. Bye.